So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be doing a part 2 of what we started last week. You see there the sermon title, if you're taking notes this morning, is If You Can't Say Something Nice. So I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, you might want to go, uh, if you want to be convicted and encouraged to be more like Christ, you might want to go online and listen to that message. It'll be a great encouragement to you, I think. And we're going to finish that message this morning by doing part two, mainly focusing on one of the reasons that we need to put off unwholesome talk and in its place, uh, talk that builds up is so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's kind of where we're heading this morning. But look at the text with me, if you will, Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 29 and verse 30, we read this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help to understand what you meant when you wrote this text. I pray, God, that you would enlighten us that you would illuminate us by your Spirit's power to help us to comprehend the truths communicated to us in your word. This day, as we talk about putting off unwholesome talk and replacing it with talk that would build each other up, I pray that we would learn that one of the reasons we should do that is so that we would never grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Help us this day to take these truths to heart, to change the way we speak, and to exalt Christ in all of our words. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, again, last week we dove into this text, starting in verse 29, about uh, getting rid of our unwholesome talk. And we talked a little bit last week about how in the English language, there are a lot of different idioms that we use to communicate kind of word pictures or, or, or ways that we talk and communicate with one another. And one idiom that kind of sticks out in my mind based on this, uh, on the, on the co- topic uh, at hand was that, that one that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember talking about that a little last week? And I asked you the question, is that a true statement or not? And half of you went this way and half of you went this way because I think in a sense it's like, it's, it's, there, I think I would answer yes and no. In one sense, words do hurt because we're human and we have emotion and we have feelings. But in another sense, we need to be reminded that we shouldn't let words over hurt us, adding injury to insult, but rather we should follow the example of Christ, how when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting him, uh, himself to him who judges righteously, right? So we're reminded that Christ is a model for us, that while he certainly was uh, hurting on the cross, at the same time, he entrusted himself to God. And so in a sense, sticks and stones, um, you know, may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. In a sense, there's some truth there, but we want to be careful there as well. And then we got into a more classic quote, a quote of Bambi that uh, says, again, if, if you can't say nothing nice, something nice, then don't say nothing at all. Remember that? We talked about that a little bit last week. And I told you that that's just not true. That's not good biblical truth. Because the point in our text is, if you can't say nothing nice or something nice, forgive me all you English majors out there, if you can't say something nice, I challenged you last week to say something filled with grace, right? We don't have the right as Christians to just bite our tongue 
and not say anything at all. Now, in a sense, James does say, be slow to speak. In a sense, there is a time and place to bite your tongue. What I'm saying is, after you've bitten your tongue for a moment, then pray that God would give you words of grace that you could then contribute for the purpose of building that person up. So you can't just say, well, I'm just not going to say anything. What you need to be praying is, God, help me say the right thing. God, help me use words that are filled with grace and that are seasoned with salt so I can go further than Thumper did and Bambi and just don't say anything. But rather, I want to say something. And that's what verse 29 is all about. Don't, don't let those corrupting talk, that unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only, which is, uh, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. And we talked a little bit last week about what that meant. And I told you this week, we wanted to continue that same theme there at the end of verse 29. So just remember, we're in that section again of of, uh, Ephesians where we're being exhorted uh, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That if you're in Christ, you're seated with him in the heavenly places. And so our conduct is supposed to match our calling. And so we've been in this section about putting off sinful behavior and replacing that with godly behavior. We talked a few weeks ago from verse 25 that we're to put off falsehood, our all forms of lying. And instead, we're to speak the truth in love. And then we talked about putting off anger, or at least sinful anger. And we're to replace that with righteous indignation. We talked about putting off stealing. That we're not to take from others, but rather we're to work with, with, our, with our own hands, doing honest labor so that we can share with others. And then we talked last week about this topic with our speech, that we want to put off the negative, sinful, unwholesome corrupt talk. The word could be translated as putrid or rancid. It's that filth talk that comes out of our mouth sometimes. We're to put that off and replace it with words of grace that would build each other up. Good words used for building up the body. And then we're going to talk next week, Lord willing, about changing the way we treat each other in verses 31 and 32 that we get rid of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander we put that away from us and we replace that with with being kind to one another tender-hearted with one another so as we're in kind of this fourth put off put on let's look at it if we can a little bit deeper you see there your outline before you with each one of these put offs and put ons there's a negative command in this case it was to not speak any unwholesome words Then there's the positive command. Instead, speak words that build others up. Then there's a rationale given with each one of these about why is it that you want to do that. And this this particular passage, 29 and 30, has two rationales. The first rationale is so that it will give grace, that you may give grace to others. The second rationale would be so, so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So let's start with that first rationale, give grace to those who hear. Again, the end of verse 29, where we left off last week, then we see that, that uh, important word, what's called a henna clause or the purpose clause, the so that, and here it is at the end of verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the first rationale behind why we want to put off unwholesome words and put on words that build up is because we want to be involved in giving grace. So let's talk about that for a moment if we can. One way to give grace, you could say, and this is your first blank in your outline, is that you're giving hope to the weary. Giving grace with your words is, in in a sense, giving great hope to people. I love how Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And in that passage, it just talks a little bit about the redeemed 
uh, covenant community of Israel who have been taught about the glories of God ought to be able to use words to sustain others who are weary by giving them hope. Or maybe you want to turn with me to a New Testament passage that has a similar idea, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so part of the idea of giving grace to people would be just giving hope to people. For example, when people come into our biblical counseling center, they're usually down and out. They come in with a downcast attitude about a difficult situation or a sin in their life. And one of the best things you can do as a biblical counselor is to look at that person and say, I have hope for you today. There's great hope for you today in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That even if that other person in the situation never changes, the hope is that you could change to become more like Christ and he will sustain you and he will give you the ability to rest in his everlasting arms if you'll come to him this day. That's, That's hope. That's sometimes all that people need to hear. They come in thinking there's no hope. I've tried everything and nothing's helping. Part of what we want to do as counselors, part of what we want to do as Christians, part of what we're commanded to do is to give grace to those who hear. Another way that you could give grace would be simply giving comfort, giving comfort to those that you're talking with. First Thessalonians chapter 4 in an eschatological passage about death and about the coming of the Lord, there's that verse that says, therefore encourage one another with these words. In other words, the idea, again, of using your words to encourage one another. Now, in that particular passage, he's talking, again, a little bit about uh, mourning, but not mourning without hope, because our hope is in the Lord. And Lord willing, the hope is those who, are, who died in the Lord that we'll see again. And so, uh, nevertheless, the idea is that we need to encourage one another with our words. Or maybe you could turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, which talks a little bit more about giving comfort to one another. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, if there's a passage you need on comfort, there it is. Right? It doesn't matter what affliction you're going through. Notice it says, who comforts us in all affliction. Your affliction may be big, or it may be small, or it may be one time, or it may be ongoing. Whatever affliction you face, there's comfort for you in God. Not only is there comfort for you, there's comfort for you to share with somebody else. Because somebody else is going to go through an affliction. And if you've been comforted by God, you're able to now encourage that individual with the same comfort which you've been comforted. That's the grace of God. That you would use your words to give people hope. That you would use your words to give people comfort. That you would use your words, number three, giving the gospel to the lost. And if you want to talk about what do we mean by giving grace to those who hear... The most important thing you could ever do in giving grace is giving the gospel. That's what the gospel is, getting what you don't deserve. The gospel is Christ's riches 
at God's riches, rather, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, that's giving grace when you're talking with somebody. You've heard me talk about and pray about having our words filled with grace and seasoned with salt. You know where that comes from. It's Colossians chapter 4, kind of the parallel passage, if you will, to what we're studying in Ephesians 4. So look at it with me, if you will, to the right, just a couple of, uh, one book over. Colossians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse 3. I want you to see where this idea of grace in your speech comes from in context. It says this, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What's the context? Evangelism. He's talking here very clearly about the fact that he's praying that God would open a door so that he might share the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ, and that Christ can dwell in you through repentance and faith. Not only that, he's, he's praying that it would be very clear And how you ought to speak, verse 5, when you're hanging out with outsiders. When you're spending time in conversations with those outside of the covenants of promise, outside of the grace of God, outside of the knowledge of Christ, when you're spending time with those people, you're to be speaking words, verse 6, which are always gracious, which are seasoned with salt. You're to be speaking words of the gospel. You're to be telling them how salt purifies sinful hearts, how salt preserves those who would remain in Christ to the utter ends, that Christ is the answer for whatever their problem is, that we're called to put off unwholesome talk, to put on the kind of talk that builds each other up so that we may give them words of grace, that we would speak the gospel, that it may give grace to those who hear everybody needs to hear this message. Everybody. You may say, well, Adam, are you saying if my neighbor or my unbelieving family member isn't doing so well and they're in a tough time, I'm supposed to evangelize them? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's the point for evangelism. Now, let me be careful here. That's not where you just come riding in on the horse and cramming it down their throat. You need God! You know, it may be like you just start to speak to them. Hey, I'm sorry about what's going on in your life. I can see this is very difficult. I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I want you to know I'm praying for you. I want you to know that I'm praying that God would use this in your life to show you how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. In fact, did you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life? I just want you to know there is hope in your situation. You see how you can go from giving them hope and giving them comfort to giving them grace, i.e. giving them the gospel in a kind and in a caring way? This is what God has called us to do. God has called us to speak words not that tear down, not words that are putrid, not words that are rancid, not words that are corrupting, not these words, but rather words that are filled with grace so that it may benefit those who hear. And the best grace that you can share is obviously the gospel of grace. So that kind of wraps up a little bit, if you will, kind of where we were last week. I want to give you a second, a second rationale why it is that we want to put off unwholesome talk and replace it with words filled of grace. 
The first one was, is so that we may give grace to those who hear. The second one is this, so that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You say, wow, that's, that's pretty strong. Well, of course it's strong. Because your words can grieve the Holy Spirit. That word grieve appears 26 times in the New Testament. It appears 15 times in the writings of Paul. It appears one place in the whole book of Ephesians, and it's right here in this very context is the one place in this book that Paul chooses to use, superintended by the Holy Spirit, this word grieving, that, that, that grieving would not be what you're, what you're introducing with your words to the Holy Spirit. The, the word grieve means to call severe or mental or emotional distress. It can mean to vex or to irritate or to offend. It can mean to insult. It also means simply to experience sadness or distress. This word is used in the New Testament of Herod Antipas, who grieved over the promise that he had made to Salome. In Matthew chapter 14, it's used of the disciples who were distressed or grieved over Jesus' announcement of his death in Matthew 17. It's used of the rich young ruler who went from Jesus grieving because he was not willing to sell all of his goods in Matthew 19. It's used by Paul who addresses the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians that he had caused them great grief and sorrow. So the basis here of causing grief is again causing pain or sorrow, or distress to another. Now, that ought to be motive enough that we watch our words, because can you imagine grieving the Spirit of God? The one who bought you? The one who sealed you? The one who sustained you? The one who enlightened you? The one who secures you for eternity, that when you speak words that are unwholesome, we grieve the Spirit of God. It's the same word my wife and I use sometimes if one of our kids were to do something that we don't approve of or that would be sinful. I might, I might look at my son or my daughter and say, you know what, hey, buddy, that really grieves me when I see you do that. It really grieves me. You should know better than that. My heart is grieved when I see you take that toy from your sister or you become selfish again and you fight over this or that. I'm grieved by that. This is what God is saying to us as his children, that he's grieved in his heart by those of us who would speak any unwholesome talk. We think just knowing that, just thinking about that, Just meditating on that alone would cause us to set a guard over our mouths that no word would ever leave our mouth that would grieve God. We need his help, don't we? To think about that is transforming to our speech. Well, in this topic of grieving the Spirit of God, certainly you may be asking the question, and I think it's a crucial question that sometimes gets asked at this very point, and it's written there in your outline. Number one, can the Holy Spirit really be grieved? I mean, maybe you're sitting out there, and you're an astute theologian, and you're thinking, well, does God really grieve? Well, let's talk about two doctrines, which I think help us understand this, and we don't want to be careful here, but the first one is this. The first doctrine is the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Here, I'm defining this according to Burkhoff's systematic theology and a little bit of Grudem. They use these same words here in defining it as succinctly as I can. But the immutability of God is this. God is unchanging in his person, his perfections, his purposes, 
and his promises. That's what it means for God to be immutable or for him to be unchanging. Turn with me to Psalm 102, Psalm 102, where we see this robustly defended in Scripture about the character of God and the immutability of God, the fact that he does not change. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 says this, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. That's a definitive text supporting the immutability of God. That even though he created the heavens and the earth, they will wear out like a garment. Like your favorite pair of blue jeans may make it five years tops. And you need to get rid of them, right? And if you have it, just go ahead and get rid of them, all right? Please, for the sake of everybody, just get rid of them, all right? Because they wear out like a garment. That's how the universe is. He changes the stars. Like we change light bulbs in our house. I mean, the idea is that even the, the, the creation will wear out, but not God. He never wears out. He never changes. He never grows old. Verse 27, you are the same. Your years have no end. That's the immutability of God. Or certainly you're familiar with Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Right? You've heard that before. I am the Lord, your God. I do not change. God is immutable. He's unchangeable. So we've got to understand that doctrine about God and not waver on it for a second. And while this is true about the immutability or the unchangeableness of God, the immutability of God is essential to understanding who God is. There are some elements of change that happen, at least from a human point of view. So your next blank, you're going to think I'm a heretic, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, the mutability of God. Okay, let me qualify it, all right, before you kick me out. The immutability of God, I don't mean that he changes. What I mean is this, God does change his mind in response to prayer and repentance. There are times in Scripture where it's apparent from a human perspective that God has changed his mind. Let me get some backup before you shoot me. Grudem writes it this way, okay? This is what Grudem says in his systematic theology, quote, When we talk about God being unchanging in his purposes, we may wonder about places in Scripture where God said he would judge his people, and then because of prayer or the people's repentance or both, God relented and did not bring judgment as he said he would. Examples of such withdrawing from threatened judgment include the successful intervention of Moses in prayer to prevent the destruction of the people of Israel in Exodus 32. So Exodus 32 is where Aaron made the calf, the golden calf. Moses came down. God is upset. They're going to wipe out Israel. Moses prays, and God decides not to wipe out Israel. That's what he's talking about in Exodus 32. Another example would be that there's the adding of 15 years of life to Hezekiah, who is sick. And in Isaiah 38, there's a prayer that's made, and God chooses not to to, to kill him or allow him to die that year, but extends his life for 15 years. Certainly, you remember the promised judgment against Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3, and yet they repented. And so God did not bring judgment, at least at that time, on that generation. 
So Grudem poses the question, are these not cases where God, at least from a human perspective, changed his mind? I mean, from where we sit, it certainly appears so. Now, I'm not saying God is mutable. I'm just trying to get you to think a little bit by using that word. Make sure you stay awake. Stay with me. You know, the idea is that from our perspective, when people repent and when people pray, God does act. I think I might say it this way. These are my own words. Quote, God ordained the change. What I'm saying is this. God knew that Israel would repent in Exodus 32. God knew that Hezekiah would pray for an extended life in Isaiah 38. God knew that Nineveh would repent in Jonah 3. You know how God knew? Because he ordained it. Because God ordained all things. He even ordained the repentance and the prayers of his children. And then he fulfilled the repentance and prayers of his children by responding to them with mercy. And with grace, instead of wiping them out, because that's his character. He's immutable in who he is, yet sometimes the way he interacts with us makes it appear like maybe change happened. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Let's say I was a college professor, and I were to give you a syllabus, and I were to say, this is what's required of you. You've got to read these books and write these papers, and this final research paper is due, and it's going to be 25 pages long. And so that's what I've told you, that's what I've communicated, that's what's in the syllabus. But through the course of the semester, all of a sudden you get into a really difficult situation where you had a loved one die, or you had mono, or some kind of sickness. And then you come to me and you ask, would I be willing to adapt some of the requirements so that you could still fulfill the course? And let's say that I showed mercy and said, I'll tell you what, instead of a 25-page paper, make it 15 pages. See, in a sense, it looks like I'm changing. Well, in a sense, the course is still the course. The syllabus is still the syllabus. The credit you get is still the credit you get. But in real time, I just chose to allow you to to make some minor changes. That's kind of what I'm talking about with the immutability of God, and yet the reality that God responds to prayer and to repentance. Now, keep that in mind, and now couple that thought, if you will, with this next doctrine that I want to talk to you about. C, the impassibility of God. The doctrine of the impassibility of God could be stated this way. God does not have passions or emotions, but is impassible, and therefore not subject to feelings. Many theologians would purport the doctrine of the impassibility of God. And there are some theologians who would say that God does not have emotion, that he does not feel, that he is a stoic God who acts in real time according to his character without the idea of being swayed by emotion. In one sense, I believe these theologians are right in the sense of that God is not pulled around like you or I may be or manipulated by an emotion and therefore change in a whimsical way. I think that's what they're trying to express. And so in that sense, I would agree with that. Robert Culver, in his systematic theology, says this, quote, God's inner conscience essence is always undisturbed and unruffled by anything he created. Gordon Lewis similarly says, God is not capable of being acted upon or affected emotionally by anything in creation. So I appreciate what these men are saying, but I think that I also want to consider what a couple of other theologians say as well. So I want you to look at D, the passability of God. The passability of God, this would be defined this way, God does, God does 
act and feel emotions. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. J.I. Packer would have this view, helps us to understand in his writing. He suggests that impassibility does not preclude God's having emotions. In other words, if God's impassable, he's saying it doesn't mean he doesn't have any emotion. Instead, he, ex- he explains, impassibility means that no created being can inflict pain, suffering, and distress on him at their own will. You get that? In other words, a human can't poke God and from the human's will and perspective, emote God one way or another. God enters, Packer writes, he enters into suffering and grief by his own deliberate decision. So if God does choose to experience grief, it's his own choice. He chooses in that moment to display that emotion. And God has permanent joy clouded by no involuntary pain. Theologian John Frame puts it this way, quote, God responds both transcendentally and eminently only to what he himself has ordained. He has chosen to create a world that will often grieve him. And that's what we're talking about here. God determined to create a world and ordain a world that he knew would grieve him and that he knew that in his own being, he would choose to display emotion of grief in certain situations. I certainly agree again with Grudem, who says in his systematic theology, quote, I have not affirmed God's impassibility in that way in this book. Instead, quite the opposite is true for God, who is the origin of our emotions and who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotion. I mean, I think part of what we're talking about is the communicable attributes of God. Part of what we're talking about is we're created in his image. Part of what we're talking about is we're to act and react like he does. So when he gets angry, as we've already discussed in this passage a little earlier, righteous indignation, we have a right and a responsibility and a command to be angry like that. When God grieves, certainly there's times in our own hearts that we also can grieve about sin that happens. God has emotion. He created emotions. He certainly feels emotions. Here's a couple of verses that might support that. Jot down Isaiah 62.5. Turn with me there if you want. Let me show you a couple of places where I would argue that God does have and experience emotion. Isaiah chapter 62 verse 5. I would say this would be the emotion of rejoicing, that God rejoices. Isaiah 62 and verse 5. We read this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What's he talking about? He's talking about a wedding. I mean, I don't know about the rest of the bridegrooms out there, but I was a bridegroom once. And boy, I rejoiced in the day of my wedding. I was like, thank you, God, for giving me a gift like that. Look at her. Here she comes. There she is. I'm thankful. There was a lot of emotion that went on that day in my heart because that was a gift of God. And what he says here in verse 5 is, in that same way, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God has emotion 
for you. God cares for you. He rejoices for you. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Certainly, there's got to be some emotion there. How about turning to Psalm 78, verse 40? And here we'll see another Old Testament passage that talks about God grieving. This is the emotion, again, of grief. We're looking at it already in Ephesians 4.30. But look at Psalm chapter 78 and verse 40. We read this. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the children of Israel who were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years in the desert. It grieved the heart of God. To see the fact that they didn't trust him, that they didn't follow him, that they didn't trust him to take them into the land of Canaan because the spies came back and 10 out of 12 said, we can't do it. And so they had to wait another 40 years wandering around. That grieved God. He certainly experienced motion in that setting. How about God also shows compassion? That's an emotion. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, we see here God shows compassion or he has pity to some degree, on his children. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. So just like a dad would have compassion on his child in some precarious situation, you show a little patience and a little pity and try to help your kid out when they're stuck in a bad place. In the same way, the father shows compassion to us. He feels compassion and sympathy for us. Or how about God loving us with an everlasting love? That's another emotion. God loves us with an everlasting love. Turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 8 In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Or we actually get two emotions there. There's anger, the beginning that God has. And then there's love, that he he has this everlasting love and compassion for you. So thank God that he's a God of emotion. He is a God whose passions we are to imitate for all eternity, as we, like our Creator, hate sin and delight in righteousness. So I'm arguing this morning from our text in Ephesians 4.30 that God does feel emotion, that God is grieved when your words and when my words tear others down instead of building them up. He grieves Second question we want to ask about this. Number two, how exactly do we grieve the Spirit? Let me give you some ways that we grieve the Spirit. Number one is our text again, with all unwholesome words that come out of our mouths. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit. It's, it's with our words. It's kind of surprising to me. You would think maybe it would be after a text on murder. If you murder somebody, the Holy Spirit's grieved. Or it would be after a text of sexual immorality. Or adultery, if you do that, God is grieved. I think that's true, that God is grieved in those two accounts. But that's not the place in Scripture where he chooses to introduce us to this concept, at least in this book of Ephesians, of the truth of God grieving. Where does he choose to use it? With our speech. Why here? 
Why does God introduce that we grieve the Holy Spirit with our speech? I, I give you two reasons. This isn't in your notes, all right? But I'll give you two reasons that I've been meditating on it some. Number one, the smallest thing you do, speech, affects the biggest person of the universe, God. Lest we think that our conversation is not a big deal, it matters to God. He hears every word we say, and so the smallest little word that you utter affects the largest being of the universe. So he just wants us to remind us that he's watching, and he's listening, and he knows. The second reason why I think this grieves the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit of God is part and parcel to the divine revelation of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit himself is an agent in giving us the word of God. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 talks specifically about this, the Holy Spirit being responsible for giving us the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." What are we saying? Prophecy doesn't come from man. It comes from God who gives it to men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the inspiration of Scripture. He's responsible for the Word of God. He's responsible for words that God speaks to us, recorded for us in Scripture. So when we speak words that tear down the character of God, by tearing down our brother or our sister, it grieves the Holy Spirit because he's very interested in words. He gave us the divine word. And so I think that's part of what's going on here, of how he would be grieved when we use words that are unwholesome and that tear others down. Well, we grieve the Holy Spirit with our unwholesome words, but we also, number two, we grieve the Holy Spirit with unholy works with unholy works that come from our flesh. Certainly, the Holy Spirit is also grieved when we do the works of the flesh. Galatians 5 talks about now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and, and things like these. I warn you, as I had warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's saying here, basically, these things will keep you out of heaven. And then he says in the next verse, but the fruit of the Spirit. It's not these things. This isn't about the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit is about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So he desires that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, not the unholy works of our flesh. Another way we grieve the Holy Spirit, number three, with unpleasant thoughts. Unpleasant thoughts, we've talked a little bit about renewing our mind. Look at Ephesians 4, right before this passage of putting off and putting on these five different things. Verse 22 says in chapter 4, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Notice again, 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. When our minds are not renewed, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Number four, with all ungodly motives that come out of our hearts. We understand that it's not just the words we say, it's the heart behind the words because our hearts are deceitful, Jeremiah says. Above all things, desperately sick. We talked about how Jesus said in Matthew that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So before you discard your lips up here, you better be guarding your heart down here. That's where it all starts. So we need to ask God to wash us with the water of his word and to renew the way we think so that our emotions are interpreted through the grid of scripture so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And there's other ways to grieve God or to grieve the Holy Spirit or be, I use this word, other ways we offend the Spirit. Other ways we offend the Spirit, these are some texts you ought to at least jot down and think about in relation to this discussion. One, quenching the Spirit. We think about grieving the Holy Spirit. Well, what about quenching the Holy Spirit? Well, 1 Thessalonians talks about that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, he's urging brothers, believers in the Lord, how they ought to be encouraging one another. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting with verse 14, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. So in other words, when we're not practicing the one another's provided for us in verses 14 through 18, we're quenching the spirit. That word could be translated extinguishing the spirit. We're putting a stop to it right there. So it's basically our sin quenches the spirit of God. Other ways we offend the Holy Spirit would be lying to the spirit. Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira not being truthful Satan filled their hearts, and they were accused by Peter of lying to the Holy Spirit. Another way you can offend the Spirit is by resisting the Spirit. Simon, or uh, excuse me, this is Stephen actually. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he became that first martyr of the New Testament, was preaching a sermon to the unbelieving Jews who didn't like what he said. And so he says this in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking to unbelievers there, but in a sense, even believers resist the Holy Spirit when we resist his convicting work, his illuminating revelation to our minds, maybe the prompting of the Spirit that, that you're sensing from the Word of God. When we resist that, we're falling into the same thing of acting as if we're uncircumcised in our hearts and ears. We're resisting the Holy Spirit. Or maybe another way you offend the Holy Spirit would be undervaluing, undervaluing the Spirit. This is Simon the sorcerer in the next chapter, chapter 8. He likes the work of the Spirit that he sees in the disciples, and so he says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. He's willing to pay good money for the Holy Spirit, to which Peter responds to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So we could undervalue the Spirit And that would certainly be offensive to him. How about this one? Blaspheming against the Spirit. Matthew 12, Jesus talks about 
blasphemy. Therefore, I tell you, everyone, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so these are other ways that we want to watch out for, that we're not offending the Spirit of God. And I would say instead of grieving or instead of offending the Holy Spirit, we should be, your next blank, what should we be doing in relation to the Spirit? Well, number one, we should be walking by the Spirit. That's what we should be doing, right? He's our paraclete. He comes alongside of us. He's our helper. We're to walk with him, arm in arm in a sense, in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Everything we do, every place we go, we got to be thinking the Spirit of God. God's Holy Spirit is right there with us. Or number two, what we should be doing in relation to the Spirit is we should be being filled with the Spirit. We'll get here eventually to 518 of Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And we'll talk about what that means, how you can be filled with the Spirit to speak in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, but also what that looks like in your marriage, what that looks like in your parenting, what that looks like in how you act at work. That's what being filled with the Spirit means as you continue to look at the end of chapter 5. But the last question I'll ask is this. Number three, why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Why should we not grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, there's an answer for us here in verse 30. Because he has sealed you for the day of redemption. I mean, we don't want to grieve the Spirit of God because he's our down payment. He's our promise. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 1? Verses 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's our seal. He's our guarantee. He's our promise. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's like we're chipping away at that down payment. Why would you want to do that? Why would we ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit who seals us, who bought us through the blood of Christ and has prepared for us an inheritance? Second reason why we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit would be because you will suffer. You will suffer great harm if you grieve him. You see, in our speech, not only do we think about the fact that when we use unwholesome talk, we hurt others. In our speech, when we use unwholesome talk, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But in our speech, when you use unwholesome talk, you hurt yourself. You bring great harm upon your own self. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his infamous commentary, six volumes on Ephesians. At this particular verse, he says that you should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for your own sake. Here's what he writes, quote, for your own sake... Do not grieve the Spirit, because if you grieve Him, it will inevitably lead to a loss of the gracious manifestations of His presence. Grieve Him, and He will withdraw Himself. I mean by that, He will withdraw the manifestations of Himself. If you grieve the Spirit, you will not have a sense of God's love to you. 
You will not have the joy of salvation. You will not have assurance. You will not have certainty. You will not have peace. You will not be able to say, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am the child of God. What Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is don't, don't grieve the Spirit because it's going to come back on you. Not in the sense of you can be removed positionally from your justification with God, but that you can be removed relationally, at least the sense of a distance between you and God. He's not going to be as close to you as you want to be because you've grieved Him. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit because great harm you will suffer. Well, let me give you just a couple of take-home principles to think about, questions to ask yourself and discuss maybe this afternoon with your family, maybe in your small group this coming week. How are you striving to have your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt so that it will be an encouragement to others? We're to be striving, but we're to be resting. We rest in the finished work of the gospel, which transforms us and gets us a high place in heaven. And yet at the same time, we're striving every day because if you just wake up tomorrow morning and you're not thinking, how can I encourage somebody today with words of grace, you won't do it. Instead, you'll wake up tomorrow thinking, who's going to serve me today? So we got to be striving every day, praying in, in the morning, God, help my speech today. Be seasoned with salt, be filled with grace that I could give words of encouragement to my wife, to my husband, to my children, to my coworkers, to my small group. I want to, I want to be filled with words of grace. Secondly, how does your view of the impassibility or passibility of God, as we discussed that earlier, how does your view of God and his, his, uh, his character and feeling of emotion, how does that affect your motive for pleasing as opposed to grieving the Holy Spirit? I mean, I would like to think that just the fact we've explored the fact that the Holy Spirit of God grieves, that it would be motive enough for you and I to say, man, I would never want to hurt God. I never want to hurt the Holy Spirit. I never want to say that because it grieves God. We need to think about that when we're thinking about words. Not just how does it affect the other person. How does it affect the Holy Spirit? Number three, how can you do a better job focusing on walking by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit instead of grieving the Spirit? I mean, if we want to focus on your relation to the Spirit, let's focus on, I want to walk with the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. I want to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. I, I, I want to be one who is focused on the Spirit of God giving me words to speak that are filled with grace, that are seasoned with salt, that build others up, that are fitting for each occasion. May God help us learn that if you can't say something nice, Say something filled with grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder of this passage, the challenging um, truth that it is that we feel sobered about the thought of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that you would have mercy upon my own heart and my own mouth and my own life as I am guilty of this sin. I pray, God, for our congregation, that you would have mercy upon us, that we would be those who speak the truth in love, that we don't practice unwholesome, corrupt talk that would tear others down, that we would no longer, with the words that we mutter even under our breath, grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Wash us with your word. 
Inspire us to speak words of truth. Fill us with your spirit so that we may be better ambassadors. That we would always be seeking to speak words of grace that would build others up. Do a special work in our hearts so that our lips may be adorned with the glory of God, the truth of your word, and grace for others to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.